Uh, children may be dismissed to junior church at this time. It's for young children. And we're going to go to Genesis chapter 11, uh, starting at verse 10 here in just a moment. Before we turn there, I thought I'd share something else. I was in my first Bible class at a college, and it was Indiana Wesleyan University. It was the fall of 2002. And it's always nice when the professor gets off on tangents, right? We always like that, as long as we're not missing things that are on the test. And one day, for some reason, I don't even know why, he talked about a preaching tour he was on in Mexico at one point. He said he was on a preaching tour, and they met with a church that met in a pretty much a, a, a trash, um, a garbage yard, landfill. The church met there, and I know why he, I know why he shared that now. I was asking about um, hell, and the Greek word used for hell, Gehenna, or at least for Hades, was a word they used for, for pretty much a refuse area outside the city of Jerusalem. And so they were meeting at a church there, and he said, I thought I preached a, a fairly decent message, maybe 50, 55 minutes, and I go back to the pastor's house. Now, in Spanish, you would say pastor. Um, and they go back to his house, and his wife, the pastor's wife, gives him some coffee with some cream she pulled off the shelf. And he said, I don't know how long that cream was sitting on a shelf out of the refrigerator. But they sat and talked and drank uh, coffee together as the um, church continued to meet and continued to sing songs of praise and worship. And then they went back. And the pastor preached another very lengthy message. So their service just went on and on and on. It was kind of applicable to me when at that time, oftentimes I was very concerned with kickoff time on Sunday mornings. And the pastor, the professor back at Indiana Wesleyan in Marion, Indiana, shared how he went and served a church in Cleveland as I think his first pastorate. And he, he said there are two religions in Cleveland. And he said on the first Sunday... He's going up to preach, and one of the elders said, remember, kickoff's at 1 o'clock. And he said he wasn't an elder very long after that. What are we here for? I only say that not because it has to do with the text right now. I just say that because I personally am cognizant of the time, knowing that everybody else is cognizant of the time. But it's always a reminder. I went to Dominican Republic on a mission trip, and they're coming to church in secondhand suits, and the pastor is going around for two hours before picking up people for church in a pickup truck, literally. They're riding in the pickup truck. We rode with them. They said, Americano, Americano, gringo, gringo. That's what they said because that Spanish for foreigner. Anyways, they're so excited to come to church. They're so excited for worship, not watching the clock at all. Sometimes we think we're taking the gospel to them, but maybe we can learn from these other countries. Today and next Sunday, it'll be the last two sermons in this series on foundations. The Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are foundational to our faith, foundational to our Bible. And then we're going to begin a series on difficult times. We're going to have, actually in about three weeks, 
uh, the regional director of Celebrate Recovery is going to give it just a great, great, great message here. But the first sermon I'm going to give in a few weeks on dealing with difficult times and how a Christian is to respond to life's challenges, life's difficulties, life's hardship. The first message I'm going to give is going to be based on Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 17. And you can look it up later. I'm not going to read it to you, but I'm sure that you're going to want to look up and meditate on that verse ahead of time, knowing how, how spiritual y'all are. So if you want to look that up and read it, Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 9, you can read that. But today we're going to begin the narrative of Abraham. Now we've already, we've already in a way began the narrative of Abraham because Abraham comes from Shem. Abram, Abram and all the Jewish people come from Shem, the son of Noah. So if we talk about Noah, that's leading to the Abrahamic people. And the Abrahamic people lead, lead to us. By way of introduction, over the last several years, we've experienced a lot of moral shifts as a culture, haven't we? No one can argue that. It's just obvious and it's just clear. We look at things and think, wow, I never thought I would see that in my lifetime. Yet, we can trust that God is in control. We can trust that God is in control. Amen? Amen. God is in control. And that's going to be a major theme of this message. John Piper created this story based very loosely on a tale from T.H. White called The Once and Future King. It's kind of a little lengthy story, uh, but it's a good introduction to this text. Once upon a time, there was a very wise old man named Job. Not Job in the Bible. Job. In his old age, God gave to him a daughter whom he named Jemima. Jemima and Job. Jemima is a dad, the older dad. Job, uh, Jemima, Job is a dad, the older dad. Jemima is the daughter. Jemima means little dove, little dove. That's really neat. It's really special. I'm going to remember that. My next daughter, I'll name Jemima. Um, he loved his little girl, and she loved her daddy. One day, Job decided to go on a journey and asked Jemima if she would like to go along. Oh, yes, Jemima said. I would love to go along. So they started off on their journey, and they walked all day. At sundown, they saw a little cottage, and they knocked at the door. They knocked on the door. A very poor man and his wife and baby lived there. Job asked if he and Jemima could spend the night there before they continued on their journey the next morning. The poor man and his wife were very happy to let them stay. They gave Job and Jemima their own room and made them a simple supper. The special treat was fresh milk from their only cow. This was how the poor couple made a living with this cow. Their cow gave good milk, which they sold for enough to live on. So this poor family is extremely hospitable to Job and Jemima. In the morning when Jemima and Job woke up, they heard crying. The cow had died during the night. The poor man's wife was weeping. Now remember, they made all their money from this cow and, her, and the cow's milk. The wife is weeping. What will we do? What will we do? She sobbed. The poor man was about to cut the cow into pieces and sell the meat before it spoiled. But Job said, I think you should not cut the cow in pieces, but bury him by your back wall under the olive tree. The meat may not be good to sell. 
Trust God and he will take care of you. So the poor man did as Job suggested. Poor man, very hospitable. And yet their cow dies overnight. They're very hospitable. They do what God would call them to, show hospitality to strangers. And yet God takes away their cow overnight. How do we make sense of that? That'll be a sermon during the difficult, uh, the dealing with difficulties series. In contrast, Job and Jemima went on their way. They walked all the day again, and they were very tired when they came to the next town, and they noticed a fine home. They knocked on the door. A very wealthy man lived in this house, and they hoped that they would not be an inconvenience to one so wealthy. Now, it could seem like this is about to introduce the, uh, the, the wealth as the problem. The wealth is really not the issue. The problem is inhospitality. They're not being hospitable, just to make that little disclaimer for this next part. In contrast to the poor man who was very, very, very hospitable and loving and generous, the man at this house was very gruff. And he said they could stay in the barn. He gave them water and bread for supper and let them eat it by themselves in the barn. Job was very thankful and said to the wealthy man, thank you very much for the bread and water and for letting us stay in your barn. In the morning, Job noticed that one of the walls of the house was crumbling. Now remember, for the very hospitable, poor family, their cow died in the night. For the wealthy family that's not hospitable, one of the walls of the house was crumbling. So Job went and bought bricks and mortar and repaired the hole in the wall for the wealthy man. Then Job and Jemima went on their way and came to their destination. As they sat by the fire that night, Job's daughter Jemima said, Daddy, I don't understand. I don't understand the ways of God. It doesn't seem right that the poor man's cow should die when he was so good to us. And that you should fix the rich man's wall when he was so bad to us. The poor man lost a cow by way they made made their living based off their cow. And the rich man, when his wall was broken up, Job fixed it for him. I don't understand the ways of God, Jemima said. Now, and here's the point. Well, Jemima, Job said... Many things are not the way they seem. Perhaps this once I will tell you why, but after this you will have to trust God, who does not usually explain what he's doing. The poor man's cow was very sick, but he didn't know it. I could taste it in the milk that he gave us for supper. Soon he would have sold bad milk, and the people would have gotten sick and died, and they would have stoned him. So I told him not to sell the meat, but to bury the cow under the olive tree by his back wall, because... The Lord showed me that if he dug the grave there, he would find a silver cup buried from long ago and sell it for enough money to buy two good cows. And in the end, things would be better for him and his wife and child. God's providence. When we spent the night at the rich man's house, who was not hospitable, I saw the hole in the wall and I saw more than that. I saw that hidden in the wall from generations ago was a chest full of gold. If the rich man had repaired the wall himself, he would have found it and continued in his pride and cruelty. So I bought brick and mortar and closed the wall. So the man would never find this treasure. Do you see, Jemima? Yes, Daddy, I see. Like that father, God works certain things out in ways that we are unaware of. In today's passage, we see the family line of Abram. But I see much more than that. I see God being in control of all of human history. As God orchestrates history from Shem, which is Noah's son, to Abram, God is also orchestrating history towards our salvation, 
Through Abram's descendants, Christ will come. God is overseeing, God is orchestrating things from all of history, from Shem, which is Noah's son, to Abraham, from Abraham to us, from us even to the end, the consummation of all things. God is in control. There's many things we just don't know why. One thing works the way it does, and another thing doesn't. We just don't know why. We don't know these details, but we can trust that God is our loving Father and He is in control. We see it time and time again in Scripture, and we can hear it through testimony after testimony after testimony in people's lives. My theme today is the family line of Abram, the family history of Christians. The family line of Abram, the family history of Christians. Notice God's sovereignty over time. You know the song, Father Abraham, many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> and I am one of them. And so are you. So just praise the Lord. And you're supposed to have actions and things like that. But the point is, and Galatians gets into this, and Romans gets into this, as Christians, we are grafted in to Father Abraham. So even though we look at passages like this, what has my theme been? My point for this sermon series These passages in Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are foundational to Christians. They're foundational to the Bible. They're foundational to our life. We just can't tamper with the Bible. We can't just take things out and view them as myth or not true. They are real. They are true. They are history as well. So we see a settlement. A history is given in Genesis 11, 10 through 32. A history is given of Shem's descendants. And Shem is the ancestor of Abraham. We're not going to read all these verses. I encourage you to do that as homework um, tonight for your daily devotions. Um, your tag times, your ta- time alone with God. That's what tag time stands for, time alone with God. But I, I want to pick out a few verses. In Genesis 11, verses 10 through 11, it says, These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old... He fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and other sons and daughters. You know, Dr. Adelnik is a professor of Jewish studies and Bible, a Messianic Jew, at Moody Bible Institute. And at one point I've heard him share, actually a number of times, I've heard him share on his program on Moody Radio, that DNA studies actually confirm that Jewish people in the Israel area all come from one ancestor. So in that case, DNA studies are confirming, verifying the Bible. They're verifying even this chapter that they all go back to Shem. They all go back to one common ancestor. So now we're back to a genealogical record. The ESV study Bible says, while the periods mentioned are still unusually long, they are gradually becoming shorter. Ever since the flood, people are gradually living shorter lives. They're much shorter than Genesis 5. If you go back and you read Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 through 32, they lived much longer than here. By the way, this is similar to the pattern found in a clay tablet from the Mesopotamian city of Uruk. That's a really cool city name, by the way. Uruk. I mean, it sounds like Viking, doesn't it? Sometimes when I found a city, I'm going to name it a Viking name because I think that's really cool. Anyways, back to the text. So this is the Mesopotamian city of Uruk, and it's called the Sumerian Kingless. Sumerian Kingless. It was inscribed by a scribe during the reign of king. This is a cool name, too, by the way. Atak Hegel. 
Atak Hegel. And it's around 2100 BC. And it tells of kings who reigned for extremely long times. A flood then came and subsequent kings ruled for a vastly shorter time. So here we have an extra biblical tablet. It's not from the Bible. It's extra biblical. And it's back to 2100 BC. And it's through archaeology confirming the biblical narrative, which is really, really fascinating. Um, so, by the way, Shem, again, I need to impress this strongly, is the son of Noah. And Shem's, and this genealogy is all the descendants of Shem. We had genealogies in Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 5. And those were genealogies of the other people groups. But this is all distinct and specific to Shem because it's setting things up for Abraham, for Father Abraham who had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. The Moody Bible commentary shares, much like the genealogies in Genesis chapter 4 and 5 and 10, so the genealogy here follows immediately after a brief narrative describing the commission of grave sin. So they had sin in Genesis 4, right? With, with Cain and with Abel. And then there's a little genealogy. And then we had sin later with one of Cain's descendants. And then he had a genealogy. And then we had... Sin in Genesis 9 with Noah, right? And then you had a genealogy. And then we had sin in Genesis 11, the very beginning of Genesis 11, which was the Tower of Babel. And again, we have a genealogy. Thus, this moderates the negative tone of the previous episode by demonstrating that God's fundamental blessing of humanity remains intact. And what is God's fundamental blessing in these texts? Be fruitful and multiply. Even after the sin... Even after the gross sins occurring, God is still blessing humanity that they can be fruitful multiplying. Moody Bible Commentary continues, The present genealogy, moreover, being that of Shem, also serves as an adept literary theological transition to the next thematic half of Genesis. The expectation is thus laid that the present genealogy of Shem will likely be followed by a narrative episode involving the making of of a Shem name, right? God tells Abraham in the very next chapter, I will make your name great. And in making Abraham's name great, whose name is being made great? It's Shem's name. It goes back to Shem. So we see Abraham introduced in verse 26. So we're gonna skip all the way from verse 11 to verse 26. So let's look at that. Genesis eleven twenty-six. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor and Haran. And at this point, Abram's name is still Abram. Later on in Genesis chapter 17, God will rename him Abraham and God will rename Sarai, Sarah. So we see in verse 26, Terah lived 70 years. He became the father of three, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. We have those listed. Now, if you cross-reference, which is a very important part of Bible study, and you correlate this, we can go to Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. And in chapter 24 of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 2, it says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Now, why does that matter? They were pagan. They did not serve the one God when God called them. God did not call Abram and, Ter- and, 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 his, and his, his father Terah. He did not call them because they were better than the other people. He did not call them because they already served just one God. Joshua himself is saying, your ancestors served many gods. 
God did not choose him because he was special and followed God. This is God taking the initiative. It's about God's grace. And he does the same thing with us when we become Christians. He doesn't save us because we're better than other people. He doesn't save us because we earn our salvation. It is all repeatedly about God's grace. God takes initiative. While we were still sinners, God sent his son. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. We love him because he first loved us. Now, that may not make you feel better because you earned your salvation, but hopefully it makes you feel better that God set us free. God saved us. God didn't care about our past. He cares about our future because he loves us. He wants a relationship with us. Genesis eleven twenty seven. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. We now see Lot and Abram. Now, here's an interesting thing, an extra, another cultural note. Nahor's wife, Milcah, eventually produced eight sons. She was really outnumbered. You can see that in Genesis 22, 20 through 23. Her most famous son, Bethuel, became the father-in-law of Abraham's son, Isaac, in Genesis 25, 20. In contrast to Milcah, Sarai, later called Sarah, was unable to conceive. And this painful fact is emphasized by the biblical writer, restating the fact that she did not have a child. God's provision of an heir of, for Abram in spite of Sarah's barrenness is a major theme in the narrative that follows. Now look at verses 28 through 30. I thought that was the cultural note. The cultural note's gonna come down a little bit later. Look at verses 28 through 30. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. And that's where that's emphasized. And anybody in that culture would have noted that. You would have heard organ music, you know, like in an old movie. Do, do, do. You know, that's a big deal, not being able to have a child in that culture in that time period. And in many cases today as well, right? Verse 28, so Haran dies and presses his father Taran. And now we see the land of Ur mentioned, Ur of the Chaldeans. The Net Bible shares the phrase of the, of the Chaldeans. The phrase of the Chaldeans is a later editorial clarification for the readers, designating the location of Ur. From all evidence, there would have been no Chaldeans in existence at this early date. They're known in the time of the Neo-Babylonian Empire in the first millennium BC. Verse 29, we have Abram and Nahor and they take wives. The Net Bible shares the name Sarai which is a variant spelling of Sarah means princess or lady. Sheratu was the name of the wife of the moon god, Sin. The original name may reflect the culture out of which the patriarch was called, for the family did worship other gods in Mesopotamia. Again, they came out of a very pagan culture, and God is going to set them free of that to serve the one true God. So Nahor's wife is Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. And Milka will come up later, as has been mentioned. The name Milka means queen. But more to the point here is the fact that Malkatu was a title for Ishtar, the daughter of the moon god. If the women were named after such titles, and there's, there's no evidence that, that this title was the motivation for naming the girls princess or queen. But if the name was after that, that would not necessarily imply anything about the faith of the two women themselves. It's, it's implying the faith of their people, the faith of their culture, but not necessarily the faith of Sarah herself. Now look at verses 31 through 32. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans. 
to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So we can see right here, life expectancy shortening. Now, he only lived, he only lived 205 years. And they left Ur of the Chaldeans at least a little bit. They left, okay, but they didn't make it all the way to Canaan. Not yet. That's going to come. Sarah was barren. That's repeated. She had no child. And this shows that it was initially, by the way, this shows it was initially Terah who left Ur, not Abraham. It wasn't Abraham who left that background first. It was Terah. So Terah, Abram, and Lot, the grandson, and Sarai, they all go out. They go as far as Haran, and they settle there. By the way, this passive portrayal of Abram is extremely significant. For it disallows the conclusion that the promise was given to Abram as a result of anything especially meritorious that he did. Abram did not do anything to earn God's favor, and neither do we. There's much more that could be said about that, but... I want to move on to applications and review. Here we see the introduction of Abram. Here we see the introduction of the father of our faith, the beginning of the patriarchs. From Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 50, it's all about Abram and his descendants. One could argue, and I would, from Genesis 12, even from Genesis chapter 11 through the rest of the Bible, it's all about the Jewish people. It's all about the descendants of Abraham. And that is how this is so foundational to our faith and not to be skipped over. But there's some more applications. Abram's father, Terah, was called out of Ur. This happened prior to Abram's call. This shows that the call of Abram in Genesis 12 was all about God's grace. Salvation is always from the Lord. We must never boast of our salvation. Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord. We can never boast of our salvation. God is working in history. We must trust him. He's in charge of history. And let me ask, are we trusting him now? We've seen a lot of changes. It's probably no secret that... This congregation has seen a lot of changes because a lot of you are older than me. That's obvious. I'm sorry. Statement of fact. And so just saying in your lifetime, you've seen more changes in culture than I've seen. And I look at things as a senior millennial at the age of 41 and a half. And I think, wow, never thought I would see this stuff go on in my lifetime. Can we trust the Lord? God is in control. Can we trust him? Amen. God is in control. And you know, there's been times before, if you, I read last week from John Wesley's journals and how John Wesley, John Wesley would go and preach somewhere. And this is the 1700s. This is the, around 1740. And John Wesley would go and preach somewhere. And he would write in his diary, preached at this church. They had a special meeting to determine I'm not welcome back. I offended some of the most influential people of the congregation. He would go somewhere else, preached here, told not to come back again. And that was then. He offended them with the gospel. He was told not to come back. But you know what God did? He brought a great revival. It's called the Great Awakening Awakening now. It started with John Wesley and George Whitfield and Charles Wesley, who was a great hymn writer. And you know what they ended up doing? They ended up preaching in the open fields. 10,000 or so would come. They would throw fruit at him, but he kept on preaching. And they'd be saved. And he started small groups. 
He started small groups, accountability groups that asked each other probing questions. And, and they really emphasized being involved in those small groups. And people, people grew in their faith and the gospel spread. And if you read the studies of that time period, England was really struggling with a lot of moral decay, a lot of sinfulness, a lot of condoning you know, of sin, even in their parliament. And God brought this great revival. And I hear that stuff and I pray, do it again, Lord. Do it again. Either come, Lord Jesus, come or bring another revival. It's happened before. The fall of Rome, you could go back and they asked Augustine. Actually, I'm told it's Augustine. Augustine is a city in Florida. They asked St. Augustine, you know, what are we going to do with the fall of Rome? And he said something, I'm heavily paraphrasing here, do what we always do. Keep proclaiming the gospel. Keep living as Christians. And of course, Rome was very much in moral decay before it fell. God is in charge of history. And we must trust him. Now, it's time for me to make a preaching note here. It's a convictional note, but I must say it. If we say we're trusting him, but we're not really committed to him, we're not trusting him. If we say we're trusting him, but we're not really committed to a relationship with him, we're not trusting him. If we say, yeah, God's in control, God's in control, I'm trusting him, I'm trusting him, he's in control, I believe he's in control. But we only get frustrated and have to remind ourselves about that when there's certain, with certain pet topics, then we're not really trusting him. Are we trusting him with everything he calls us to do? Which includes commitment to spiritual disciplines. Which includes commitment to prayer, which includes commitment to time in, in God's word, the Bible, which includes commitment to the local church. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Do not forsake the gathering, the assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. But keep meeting together, spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. In the first century, it says they were sharing meals together, they were meeting together daily. I guarantee they knew nothing of the superficial church commitment we have in our culture. And if we say we are trusting him because he's in control of history, and he is, that's totally true, undeniable. He's in control of history. And if we say we are trusting him, but we are not committed to a spiritual relationship with God, a relationship which means daily time with prayer, praying without ceasing, prayer on our knees or, in a, or, or just maybe even laying in bed or, or sit, sitting in a chair, just time alone with him, tag time, you know, time alone with him daily. And we're not committed to church and we really are not trusting him. There's sins of commission and most all of us would agree. No, we're not going to get into those sins of commission, at least certain ones. We have no problem with certain other sins of gluttony and things like that, but most of us would agree on the sense of commission. But then there's sense of omission, which are things that we don't do that we should be doing. And I'm pretty well convinced that most of the American church, and it probably impacts Bethel too, that we really don't believe in prayer. I can prove it. We have prayer meetings. I'm pretty well convinced that we really don't believe in the importance of the church. I'm pretty well convinced of a lot of this stuff. Uh, people come to me, and I'm becoming more and more convicted. Like, why am I meeting with people to try to biblically counsel them when they don't even come to Sunday school, midweek Bible study, and commitment to the church? 
why should I be a Band-Aid? Why should I just be a pill to help them for a little bit when they're not helping themselves? And I've been convicted over the last six or nine months of uh, my own time becoming just out of control because I can't say no for meeting with people. And if they're coming to Sunday school and midweek Bible study and other things and committing to these other spiritual activities, then I can help and support them. But I got to guide them towards a church. And I hear people and they'll walk out. And for example, I've heard people say certain things like uh, about, you know, a, the worship service. And it could be a reflection of the sermon or something else. And I think, yeah, but if I put it together in my head, they're only here once a month, so then they're choking on it. What, ha- what would happen if you only ate once a month? You would, like, not be able to digest that food. What would happen if you only ate once a week? So sometimes people are just coming on Sunday morning, and they're not worshiping through the week. I'm, I'm sure this doesn't apply to you, but let me get, say it. Uh, they're, they're not worshiping throughout the week. They're not, ty- they're not in the Word throughout the week. And they expect to be fed. But the problem is, we don't have baby food here. And that's what you need at that point. And then you gaslight. Gaslighting is when you have a problem, but you make it look like the other person's a problem. They blame the church. The church isn't at fault. You are. Now, the U.S., whoever, you can apply it. I'm not saying it's each and every one of you. And I have one more question and application here. How many of you would sit around and do drugs with your children? How many of you would sit around and, I don't even know the proper terminology because I've never once smoked pot or any, and never smoked anything. How many of you would sit around and do that with your children? How many of you would have an orgy with your children and grandchildren and with other people around? You're like, where are you going with this? We all agree that's sinful. We all agree that's sinful. We would never do that with our children and grandchildren but you have no hesitation skipping church and things like that with your children and grandchildren. And that is a sin of omission and that leads to other sins. It's a lack of spiritual growth. It's a sign of the times. So we are trusting God, we have to live for him. We have to live in a relationship with him. We have to really know him. And I told you, this is the hard part to say. It's a hard preaching point, but it's just as important. So I encourage you to take it and pray about those things. At this point, we see God is working in history. We must trust him. He's in charge of history. And we must trust him with the present. We must trust him with the future. God was working his providential plan in this passage. God was working his providential plan through the line of Shem to lead to Abram, to lead to us. We may get fearful of things going on, but this reminds me God is at work. We can trust him. Terah left Ur. But may not have even realized God's plan, yet God was at work. Sometimes God is working through us, and we do not even know it. Right? I mean, how many times have you been in places, and you didn't know what God was doing? And maybe a few years later, you're like, wow, I did not realize what God was doing. A week ago, Friday, I had to make a stop at a grocery store. But I stopped here at the church first and thought I should get some things done first. And so I was going to be at the grocery store at like 2.30 to pick something up. But I ended up spending an extra hour or so here, then ended up there an hour, an hour and a half later. While I was at checkout, I exit the store. I hear, hi, pastor. And I ran into somebody, coincidentally, 
who was going through a lot of difficulty, was able to pray with him. I think God orchestrated that. I didn't know God was telling me, slow down, do this other stuff at the church. I was actually quite frustrated because I was an hour behind schedule. And if you know me, you know I'm a scheduled type A person, but God had a plan. I didn't know the plan until after when I started praying with him, I thought, wow, thank you, God. This is awesome. There's many things that you and I are going to go through, and we're not going to know how God's working, but we can know that he has a plan. He's in control. He has not surrendered the throne. Never underestimate God's providential plan. This section sets up the rest of Genesis to be about Abram's family. This section sets up the rest of the Old Testament to be about Israel. This section sets up the rest of the Bible to be about Israel. Through Abram will come Israel. Through Israel will come Jesus. Praise God for his detailed work in history. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-eight: For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Now let me ask you. Does that verse, Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight, still apply today? It does. It has not changed. Kingship, political leaders, belong to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Nothing has changed. God is in control. He was in control then. He's in control now. Do not fear God is in control. John Piper writes, Providence is the purposeful sovereignty that carries those plans into action. Guides all things toward God's ultimate goal and leads to the final consummation. Job's prayer is true. You can do all things. You can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job 42.2. Or as God himself states it positively, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah 46.10. God's eternal plan includes everything from the most insignificant birdfall to the movement of stars, Isaiah 40, 26, to the murder of his son, Acts 4, 27 through 28. God's plan includes the moral acts of every soul, its preferences, choices, and deeds. Neither Satan at his hellish worst nor human beings at their redeemed best ever act in a way that causes a revision in God's all-wise plan. Whether God planned to permit something or planned to be more directly involved, Nothing comes to pass but what God planned as part of the process of pursuing his ultimate goal. Therefore, the extent of God's providence is total. Nothing is independent of it. Nothing happens but by the counsel of his will, the infinite wisdom of his plan. He is faithful and we can trust him. Let's pray to him. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your all-wise plan. You are in control. And Lord God, I know, I'm sure, that if there were a lot of people questioning what God is doing between Shem and Abram, they would not know what you were doing. Terah probably did not know what you were doing. Nahor probably did not know what you were doing. Sarai and Abram did not know what you were doing early on. And certainly Shem did not know all the details of your plan, very minimal, if anything, but you were working through history and you continue to work through history. And we need your help being faithful. Lord God, we need your help being faithful. We need the Holy Spirit to compel and to convict and guide us to be active in spiritual disciplines, individual and corporate. We need the spirit to prompt us and convict us to spend time in your word, time in prayer, 
daily devotions, tag times. We need the spirit to convict us to be committed to the body of Christ in small groups, prayer partners, accountability partners, and certainly corporate worship and everything in between. We're gonna need the church more and more in the future. Lord, I believe that. And I believe you're pruning the church right now across America to make it stronger so we can continue to carry out the Great Commission. Guide and bless us with the Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As always, the altars are open. If God has laid anything in your heart and you wanna come forward and pray, uh, the altar response is not necessarily...